Welcome to the URM Journey to Academic Medicine podcast, also known as the URM Jam, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. On this podcast, we will address the real and perceived barriers faced by historically underrepresented in medicine students and residents who are considering a career in academic family medicine. We'll provide practical tips and personal advice on topics like leadership, scholarly activity, CVs, mentorship, and more. I'm Dr. Omari Hodge. And I'm Dr. Tochi Iroku Malise. And this is URM Jam. All right, Dr. Tochi, so wonderful to be on another podcast with you. And, you know, one of the um, questions that many residents, students, and even myself, faculty sometimes have are some of the intricacies involved uh, with ACGME, the who, what, when, why, how, all those things. And I'm wondering if we could ask you a few questions and maybe get some of your expertise and break down some of these complex terms for us. So... So yeah, that, no, absolutely. That I'm I'm happy to be here again. It's another year, so that's right. <laughs> and a, at ACGME, uh, yeah, that is something that baffles a lot of people. Uh, even yeah. those of us who have been in the field for over dec- some decades, yeah. uh, we are continuously going to the meetings just to get more education and to make sure we understand exactly what's what. Well, to help us narrow in on this moving target, maybe we can start off with something simple. What is the ACGME? What does that acronym stand for in its role in medicine? So this is funny because for ACGME, I'm I'm always Googling to make sure I have it right. Uh, (laughs) ACGME is Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. So it's a private, not-for-profit organization, and it sets the standards for all graduate medical education, whether it's residency or fellowship programs, and the standards for the institutions that sponsor them And then it gives accreditation based on whether these institutions and programs are complying with the standards that they've set. And so this accreditation piece is done. It's a voluntary process, of course. Um, They've Uh got evaluation. Uh They've got a review based on their standards. And the ACGME, besides doing accreditation, they also give recognition and initiative awards. So okay. recognition is if they've done something extra, you know, okay. then you get something and then that's a process where they'll evaluate you and review you based on some recognition standards. Okay. And then they've got a few initiatives, which some people, you may have heard of them. Uh, one of them are the awards that are given out to DIOs. Uh, that's the designated institutional official, the person mm-hmm. who's in charge of all residency programs, the program mm-hmm. directors, coordinators, residents, fellows, et cetera. Then you've got the back to bedside initiative that came out. Um, which is, you know, increasing time with patients, mm. then clear, mm. clinical learning environment review. And I say that with a little bit of a mm, pause, because yeah. I remember way back when, uh, when clear first came out, we were mm. all stressed out about it, because this was not that the ACGME was coming to interview the program director, the faculty, and the right. residents alone. Now they were interviewing the environment in which the students and residents were learning, actually. So, so they big were- brother. Yeah, your big, big brother indeed. Yeah. So they're okay. the teaching hospitals, medical centers, the health system, okay. uh, any clinical setting that was affiliated with a residency program or fellowship, uh, okay. they had to go in and do an evaluation, checking on 
patient safety, healthcare quality, care transitions, supervision, well-being, professionalism. And let me tell you, they would interview the administrators of those organizations and those institutions, as well as the residents and to see whether everything lined up and, and mm. you could get dinged on that. So that was what caused caused a bit of angina for yeah, yeah, yeah. when that yeah. first came out, because there are some things that are a little bit beyond your control. Um, but yeah, so this, that was something new that came out. Now they do that every 24 months. Nice. And then the other two uh, initiatives that the ACGME has is there's the physician well-being, you know, pursuing excellence, uh, mm -hmm. just what initiatives have programs done to increase that for residents, fellows, and, and others. And then the uh -huh. sponsoring institution 2025, mm -hmm. which is basically a task force trying to figure out what is GME going to look like in the future and what are we doing now to get there? And so those are some of the um, things that they see. So besides just doing basic accreditation, they also have mm -hmm. those recognition and um, initiative awards. Well, thanks for the breakdown. You know, we know about the mothership, but it can get really complex. <laughs> and sometimes yeah. it sounds foreign when you hear all these different terms. So I really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. um, okay, let's move on to another question. How about the RRC? That's another acronym that we hear a lot. Maybe you could break that down and explain how it talks about common and specialty requirements for us. Right. So when you have, so the ACGME um, mm -hmm. is overseen by, because you have so many specialties, so you have a right. review committee. Um, mm -hmm. So residency review committee or RRC. Um, and those again are volunteers and that's, those are volunteers coming from the various programs. You have, you know, uh, ch chairs, program directors, uh, right. residents, faculty, et cetera, who apply to get onto these committees. Okay. And they help to set accreditation standards and they do that peer evaluation. So they'll go out to do the site visits that people are familiar with. If you're in right. residency, yep. they'll come out to you to do a site visit of your institution, the programs to do that clear visit. Um, so the ACGME governs all these specialties, but the RRC governs the individual specialties. So ACGME, everything, right? right. RRC, now you have family medicine has its own RC. Emergency medicine has its RC. Psychiatry has its own, pediatrics has their own. So we'll have the common requirements that all um, programs are supposed to have, the basic set of standards that okay. everybody's supposed to have when, it, when you're training and preparing residents and fellow docs. Right. Um, then you have the specialty ones specific to that specialty. Okay. So that I'm, I'm gonna give you an example because a specialty has changed so much. This And this influences policy. So for mm. example, in, in the internal, if you're doing um, internal uh, inpatient rotations for right. family medicine, residents can be overseen, supervised by any specialty who's in the hospital. Right. So that's okay. You could be, so if you have hospitalists who are rotating, you know, being their supervising physician, that's fine. That's fine. But for internal medicine, their RRC it. that it could only be internal right. medicine doctors right. who right. are supervising their residents in the inpatient right. setting. So right. therefore, if you have hospitalists in a in a hospital and the part of their job is to supervise internal medicine residents, right. it makes it difficult for the hospital to hire a family medicine hospitalist. Right. You see how that all you know yeah, how that all plays out. We've yeah. run into that situation because we right. actually on our night float have <laughs> internal medicine hospitalists overseeing right. our family medicine residents. Right, you could do that. But right. they wanted to come in and work in our clinic and right. we picked up on it quickly that they couldn't because we right. as, as attendants couldn't oversee them 
as I right. am resident. So that's right. those nuances exactly. really matter. Yeah, that is one of those. So those that's the, so those are the little requirements, and that's why we say you know I'm always saying we need to you know kind of convince I am they need to change their policy because that's right. a barrier to allowing uh, family medicine Absolutely. docs you know helping to supervise I am because we allow I am you know to supervise us. So the, you know so that's that's an interesting thing. So those are those and it's 55 pages. The common program requirements, basic mm. standards, 55 mm. pages, and it talks mm. about who you can hire for personnel, your staffing, how, who's allowed to be appointed as a resident, right. what is your educational program like, the, the curriculum, how do you evaluate people, the residents, the faculty, the program itself, um, and then what's the learning and working environment like. So mm. for family medicine, we mm -hmm. have the same categories as the common program requirements that all programs have. But then right. again, like I said, there's the detail, the devil is in the details for family medicine. So okay. for us, we, you know, they say you have to complete your residency training within right. 36 months, which right. now lends itself to our certification, ABFM, American Board of Family Medicine, which won't right. let you take the certification exam until you've until done, done 36 months. months. <laughs> Everything is linked, right? right? right. So that's, right. Right. And so it's like residents sometimes complain, they're like, well, why can't I take an extra week off because of this? Well, right. because you didn't do 36 months this of training. Means. And for family medicine, RRC says you have to do 36 months of training. And the right. ABFM has said, well, uh, you can't take the exam until you've done 36, 36 months of training. And so yeah. you see a lot of people who will now, instead of taking leave for certain things, they'll use that time as elective time to continue doing education because they don't right. want to cut short their, um, they don't want to extend, extend their, their, yeah, their, right. yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people that did that when I was a resident. I was pregnant, and I was yeah. like, "Oh no, I'm not." I, I just took my exactly what my my time off was. Time was. I did not go beyond that. I said, <laughs> I am graduating 36 months after yes. I entered residency. That's it no. done. Um, no. Then you've got, then you've got all the residents go out to different sites. You have to have those letters of agreement mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. those. And um, those have to be renewed every 10 years. They may right. change that eventually. So, you know, res and then, right. you know, then way back when you the participating sites where the residents rotated mm -hmm. through couldn't be more than like a half an hour away. Now it's an hour away from your mm -hmm. primary clinical site. And right. in those days, you ha could only have one primary clinical site. Now you can have multiple ones. So that's right, 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 right. Um, time allotment for the program director to do their administrative work because sometimes you say well why isn't the program director doing more see more patients or doing more precepting right, well right. rrc states Mandate, how much yeah. time they need to, to that needs to be allotted specifically for administrative non-clinical work um, okay. the ratio of faculty to residents for family medicine is much is different than the other specialties right. the maximum is four to one right one faculty four residents in, right. a, in an ambulatory setting Right. And that's without seeing anybody else. If you have two to one, then you can see you can see your own patients, right? Right, right, right. Um, so residents don't complain. They're <laughs> still gonna complain. These are, these, are, <laughs> these, are the, these are the these are the requirements, and you want right. to change. You have to advocate for those advocate changes. For Right. Um, and then, you know, who's who could be a support staff and then the curriculum detail that, you know, in terms of what is full scope yeah. for us, you yeah. know, what do you need? Uh, so that's those RRC determines that. And so the, the programs have to follow those guidelines and then uh, no program is equal, but they give right. you they're kind of a kind of general, but they right. allow But they tell you what is the bare minimum you need to do. And so you take it from there. And, you know, I think it would behoove it. Um, for program directors and chairs and whoever else that in your orientation process, you, you don't have to get as in-depth as we are for our, for, our, for our listeners, but they have some sort of orientation to 
the ACGME and the RRC yes. process so that they understand because yes. there's so many times they come to you frustrated and they feel like this is personal and it's like, right. we're, it's our not. hands are tied. Yes. We don't have yeah. options, you yes. know? Yeah, and, so and I sometimes say that, yes, some people use the ACGME requirements, RRC requirements in order to push for changes in their um, program, which is good. But mm -hmm. then you also have to be careful and 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 there's a balancing act because you okay. there's a there comes a point where the push is so much and costs so much that the sponsoring institution decides, well, is it worth it to have family medicine when internal medicine would be cheaper, right? Uh, so you have to, you, okay. the, there's that balance that program directors are always um, having to play. In, okay. in trying to, how much do I push for needed changes versus a, for a citation or right. versus me being shut down completely, right? Right, um, if, right. You know, so, yeah. right. That's a great point. Um. Okay, so here's the big one. Mm -hmm. Where does the money come from? That is, <laughs> yes. Um, just like taxes and everything else, I'm sure it's very confusing, but maybe you could add a little clarity for our listeners. All right. So graduate medical education, the funding, uh, I'll say this, that program directors never know where their money, how much money they make. You have to actually go on. Some people, have, they teach you to go online and find out how much your hospital got. And then you'll know how much you you really may bring to your institution because it's, okay. the, it's the hidden secret the CFOs uh, don't tell you. Okay. But there are different types of sponsoring institutions. So like a sponsoring institution is who's, who's in charge of the program. So you've got okay. hospitals, health systems, teaching health centers, you have private okay. now, now they're private um, places. And so okay. that funding will come from the government directly to the hospital or to the yeah. teaching health center. Venture yeah. capitalists have now made this their new thing okay. for some private places, grants, co corporate sponsorships. Um, you have to worry about the um, conflict of interest there because yeah. if someone's sponsoring and they have a, you know, then do you, are you allowed to discipline a resident who's not following suit? Are you allowed to say you're fired? You know, things like that. Okay. Um, right. So, you know, so yeah. especially if it's a relative of somebody right, in the right. corporate business, right? Mission funds from medical schools for certain special fellowships. So the GME, in, it basically that's all training medical students where medical students after they've graduated, we've got to train them to become practicing physicians. So that's residencies or fellowships, right? Okay. And it's, again, like I said, different mechanisms. We've got federal, state, private entities, but the federal government is the largest contributor to the funding. Okay. And the way they do it, there are two parts. There's direct mm -hmm. GME funding and right. indirect uh, medical education. So we call yeah. it DGME and IME. Right. That's by Medicare. Right, 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 Medicare, right. Yeah, both of those payments are controlled by Medicare. Right. That means CMS, that's the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, controls GME funding the major for, for federal, right? Okay, okay. okay. So the D, D, direct cost goes to the resident salary, Okay. their benefits, faculty right. salary and benefits. So that's the direct GME funding. Right. The IME, the indirect medical education funds, that's harder to tease out because mm -hmm, that goes mm -hmm. again it usually goes to the hospital or the health system and then that covers the hospital's compensation because okay. you, you know that's the environment in which the the learners the are training. learning right right so any additional residency support staff the ma's the teaching uh, tpas the mm -hmm. you know um support uh, staff that do the scheduling mm -hmm. technology that needs to be used the emr mm -hmm. And then again, there's a little bit of a extra bit stipend for handling that population that tends to be sicker and okay. of lower socioeconomic status. 
Okay. So there are these two doctors that recently did an article, uh, Drs. Clifford and Tarchione, and they this is the example that they gave. So you have a typical teaching hospital. Mm -hmm. They have a trauma unit or mm -hmm. a neonatal intensive care unit. Mm -hmm. Those units will generally lose money for the hospital because they're so specialized. It costs a lot of money to have those specialists in the building taking mm -hmm. care of a few patients. Makes sense. Okay. However, if that hospital, teaching hospital, because usually teaching hospitals are in underserved populations, right? right, right <laughs> so right, right, right. Not the, the private one's not so much. Right. So it's t serving a vulnerable population. So they get an extra stipend for that because it's okay. a vulnerable population. They do the math to see what population are you serving. Right. And so therefore, we'll pay you for this community that you're serving. Okay. And then also that will also su um, support the specialty units with those indirect payments. So that indirect medical education payment for trainees, right? So those specialty trainees, yeah, yeah. right? And the, those who are in the NICUs, the intensivists, uh, those uh, who are doing trauma surgery, et cetera. Okay. Those trainees, there'll be extra money sent to the hospital for that, extra okay. money served because you're severing that uh, underserved population. Okay. And so, you know, that is calculated based on the population and the size of the program. And so that IME ends up being even double the cost of what direct paying just for the paying wow. the residents is. Wow. So you can see why a hospital or health system may, when they're thinking primary care, right. intensive care, you know, specialty care, super subspecialty care, and right. I'm in a, am I in a community that has underserved population, right. why they may say, mm, you know what, okay, maybe I'll get rid of, I'll cut down my primary care residency programs and just, uh, because right. I wanna start some fellowships, right? right. Because that funding that they're going to get uh, maybe maybe increased maybe and so you see that, that yeah. tension that happens when it comes to that so sure. we know that the, you know the number of since the 70s the number of pgy1 positions and residencies have are, are not equal to the number of medical students who are graduating and right. so we're always struggling to try and increase funding for gme especially for primary care right. um, and we had the teaching health centers that are out there where the mo money didn't go to the hospitals but it went to the ambulatory centers directly this was a trial pilot right. and that right. worked and the people that to increase primary care, but that funding isn't guaranteed. Every two years, you have to, you know, lobby to get that money back. Right. And so that's that's another issue that, you know, we have to take into consideration. So funding and then the venture capitalists, a whole nother story. Okay, all right. Well, no, that we appreciate that because that can be very confusing, especially if you're a resident or even a medical student and you're wondering how these things work. It can seem like it's on a mm. separate universe. So that breaks right. it down very neatly for us. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Another interesting topic. Um, so there's always chatter about something new coming down the pipeline, which yeah. kind of will change everything that you've known. <laughs> so yes. are there any new change recommendations? Change always. <laughs> always. Are there any new recommendations for family medicine residency training? Yes. Yeah. So every 10 years, uh, review committees are review their specialty program requirements. So it, it never stays static. Right. And so family medicine is having theirs now. I mean, it can be, happen sooner than that if necessary. Uh, right. So right now, uh, ACGME is accepting comments because there have been some recommendations for revision of family medicine program requirements. And those mm -hmm. comments are due by the end of January yeah. uh, this year. Mm -hmm. So the proposed uh, requirements is just a review committee going through everything they've you know they they looked at the specialty they're trying to figure out what does the specialty need as family medicine what do family medicine physicians in the future need what mm. are the healthcare needs of the communities that we serve and then saying okay the current program requirements that we have are they up to par 
for right. what we're going to need to do in the future. And some of the few recommendations that they've got out now, they have an updated definition that now, in you know, besides comprehensive care and community focus, they now have adaptive lifelong learning, values-driven mm. professionalism, and technology integration. integration. That's a mm. key one that's because we know mm. technology is playing a big role in it. Mm. They're asked, saying that participating uh, sites, again, should not require excessive travel without appropriate housing provisions. So there was some nuance, something like that before, but now they're being a little bit more prescriptive about this for residency programs. They want programs to partner with other family medicine residency programs through regional learning collaboratives. So basically sharing resources, don't sure. do it on your own. No, no program is a silo. You should sure. be working with the other programs in your area and coming up with, uh, with shared educational um, and community Ideas. aims, right? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, and then they're asking now that family medicine programs have members of the community in addition to clinical leaders serving on advisory committees for the mm -hmm. residency programs. So that's an interesting thing there because they mm -hmm. want you to know, understand what's going on in the community and how are you sure. helping your community. Sure. Program directors now, they want them to integrate multiple non-physician professionals. I think most programs are already doing that where you have MPs, CNs, PAs, CNMs, behavioral right. health pharmacists, lab technicians. So they want them to have that. They've changed the rules. They they want, instead of the bare minimum for residency used to be four residents per year, they're changing mm -hmm. it to two per right. year right. with six uh, in total. Um, the reason they used to have four was because, you know, that allowed you to have some uh, camaraderie and it also right, helped right. with being on call, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. But right. now with this, where the you have to have at least only two, that's almost similar to a fellowship, right? Where you only have two people in a fellowship. Sure, so sure. that means yeah. that you're going to cut down on the people available to do more clinical work, right? The mm -hmm. work outside of education. Um, which means that the hospitals or health systems, et cetera, are going to have to find ways to supplement that. To supplement that, okay. Right. Um, in, ter in terms of number of hours of specific training for uh, certain areas, mm -hmm. I know like there used to be like 200 hours of this and of you know, or two, 100 hours of that. Yep. Some They've cut that out for a number of them. Uh, they just said you need to have some experience in, in, in this topic in pediatrics, emergency medicine, or maternity care. They've, you know, some things that were 200 hours now, they've said, okay, it's 100 hours of exposure. Mm -hmm. um, and then evaluating that continuity experience, they now want you to check on the quality measures, EHR management, and care coordination. So these are some of the things that are down the pipeline um, mm -hmm. for the recommendations. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so there, of course, ACGB has a webinar so people can look at it. Um, and the RC for family medicine and the American Board of Family Medicine, remember they mm -hmm. could work to hand in hand. Right. Uh, they're launching the ACGME Innovation and in Residency Education Initiative, the AIR project okay. with an optional fourth year of training. And the ACGME mm. is hosting any requests for proposals of how to do four years because people have been saying, should family medicine, family medicine be four, four years, years instead yeah. of three years? Right. So no matter what, um, Everybody, all the different members of academic med family medicine are involved in giving feedback as well as individuals. So STFM is also going to be giving their feedback as mm -hmm. to what they think about the revisions, the pros mm -hmm. and cons, uh, and their suggestions, and mm -hmm. all the other um, specialty, you know, the, I should say, family medicine academic societies. And right. then the individual responses from the members. So anyone who's listening can go online and review and make a comment. So because as long as you're a member, you can make a comment to your own organization, if it's STFM or if you're AAFP or ABFM or ADFM, wherever it is, and make your comments so that that can be carried forward. Or as an individual, you can uh, make a comment directly to the ACGME.
Well, that's awesome. I know in some areas, a lot of people will be excited. In some areas, a lot of people are going to feel stressed. Yes. Um, yes. Depending upon, you know, what change affects you. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. 1650, that number had yes. been ingrained in oh everybody. But goodness. now that's not, it's just like a suggestion <laughs> right. now, you know. It's right. like it's a, a suggestion now. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that's uh, that's really good. Thank you for breaking that down because that's a lot of information for us. Okay. So um, what should... If we have any, you know, students and residents listening right now, what should they be doing to prepare for this process in, in their current roles? Or they might even know that they have a heart for academic medicine and see themselves as future faculty. What what should they be doing now? So right now they should just pay attention to what the ACGME is doing, because whatever they decide, whatever comes out from the ACGME, it right. imp impacts the residents and fellows and students. That's you getting into a residency, right? That's you eventually. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to be involved in the review committees and the other task forces, councils, committees, so that you can give your voice. Okay. Um, prepare for that annual resident survey, right? right. Because every resident, I think this is the month. <laughs> so right. Right, all right. the resident, you know, prepare for it. Think about what, once you understand it a bit better, um, think about how your survey, how will it improve what your program is doing or how will it highlight what your program is doing well, right? Mm -hmm, Understand mm -hmm. the ACGME, you can reach out to them at any time, all residents and fellows can, but it doesn't help you with contract issues, legal advice, or helping you to find a position as a resident or a fellow, so uh, niche that. Um, think about participating in one of the initiatives, the back to bedside one. Uh, that okay. one is okay. resident led. Okay. And then okay. review and comment whenever the ACGME invites comments from the community. And so just like this family medicine recommendation that's coming out now. So to right. Right. get the education there, be informed and, and make have a comment because at least you can't complain if you didn't participate. You didn't, that's right. That's right. right. That's right. And then ACGME has something just for a section just for residents. Mm -hmm. And they've got the milestone 2.0 guide sheet where you should, they're saying to residents and as students think about this because you, you're doing the EAPs, but when you get into residency, review your milestones on an ongoing basis. Know mm. what you're supposed to be doing. Do a self-assessment twice a year. Review and compare mm. your assessment of yourself with what the program is saying their assessment of you is. Mm -hmm. Write your own IEP or your individualized learning plan as mm -hmm. to what you're planning on doing to improve yourself and actively participate. Don't wait for someone else to assess you. Mm -hmm. Actively participate. If you are not sure, ask ask repeatedly and often, um, how am I doing? What can I do to improve? What am I doing well? You know, um, that point that you just mm -hmm. put in yes. is, mm -hmm. is hugely important because I yes. find that most residents, and, and I don't think they do this intentionally, but they they wait until they get the summative assessment right. from us to determine whether or not they're moving along as planned and we try our best as faculty to ensure right. that they know how they're progressing but right. sometimes it's too late and right. when i mean too late i mean that things changes could have been made beforehand and now we have to implement our own iep but where you just stated implement your own iep make right. sure that you know what you look like yeah. so that everybody's on the same page that's that's a uh, great advice yeah yeah i i think it's it's even good for us as well right as faculty to yeah. to check in with ourselves to see how am i doing and then ask others to tell us how how they think we're doing so that we can make changes so it's not too late um, you're going to have to do that as a faculty member when you become when you get into academic medicine so sometimes right. program directors and, and other leaders are too busy to check in with you so you need to do the checking in yourself make sure mm. you schedule time for that well like I said, join that ACGME's resident council. Um, it's composed of 34 members. 
and um, it's got resident representatives of the board, the review committees, osteopathic principals committees. So uh, just think about joining that. Remember I mentioned the awards in the beginning. So there's yes. the David C. Leach Award, and okay. that's for residents and fellows who have done innovation and improvement in, at their program, done um, advanced humanism in medicine, they've increased efficiency, or they put some emphasis on educational outcomes. And this can be either a team of residents Wow. An individual. So that's why I saw the, the 2021 uh, recipients, some of them were individuals, but there was one group that were a team. And I think there were about eight to 10 residents who were wow. included in that list. So, so it doesn't have to be just you alone. So apply for these. I don't know that everybody is aware of that. There are so many opportunities for uh, residents and students, well, fellows uh, yeah. to go out there. And students, think about this now as you're applying for residency, saying to yourself, okay, what am I going to do my first year? Who am I going to team up with and do this? Okay. And then submit a manuscript. There's a journal of GME for residents. Mm. I know people know there's the journal for GME for uh, faculty, but right. there's one for residents specifically, and it publishes works authored and co-authored co by residents and fellows. So it's research, educational innovations, descriptions of quality improvement you're doing at your program, your own perspective, essays, literary pieces, describing your experience as a resident or a fellow, and any thoughts that you have about the learning environment. So, right. do you know, just that's a journal of GME for residents. That's scholarly activity. So, so that's right. a way to get involved in that. Um, right. uh, submit an abstract. ACGME has an annual education conference, mm. and it's for everyone. So, mm. you know, call, the call for abstracts opens in late August, closes early in October every year. So do, mm. do for a poster, whatever you're doing at home, send mm. it, you know, share that information. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, become a GME advocate because you got to fight for GME funding to be consistent over a long period of time, especially for primary care, especially for family mm -hmm. medicine. So send those letters in, make those phone calls to your representatives, set up meetings with congressmen, use the, the GME, um, organized GME advocacy events, mm -hmm. use the STFM website because it teaches you how to do advocacy work, right? We have that mm -hmm. whole module, right. those modules right. that are there. You could join AFP advocacy uh, efforts uh, to do it right. in person or online because those things are now easier to do. So right. just become an advocate and 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 do that. So these are the things that you can do right now, starting mm -hmm. today. Pick mm -hmm. one thing that you can start doing um, as you mm -hmm. move towards um, getting yourself to understand more about uh, ACGME and its role in academic medicine. You know, and you know what I find, and Dr. Tilchi, you 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 let me know if this is your experience as well. Mm -hmm. The residents that do these things right. end up not only doing well in these areas, but even the the normal areas that they're being evaluated on, they, sh yes. they shine on. It's yes. kind of yeah. like, you know, if you come into it with a mindset, I'm just going to get through and I'm just going to focus on making sure I'm a good resident and that's it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can make it through, but when you do other things and right. try to make a contribution to your specialty, yes. it helps you shine as well as hold on to those things that in essence, um, um, transcend family medicine. So it's yes. like, um, shoot for the stars, right? And you'll be fine. But if you just shoot for the minimum, then you'll get the minimum. So you'll get the minimum. Right, 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 right. So that's wonderful. Thank you for going all of this over all of this information. It's <laughs> no problem. No it's problem. a lot, but it's useful. And yes. I feel like we're yes. better off knowing a little bit about it.
Right. And then again, everybody should just they can go to the ACGME website and there's information for anyone, faculty, for resident students, et cetera. So um, this is a good refresher. I was glad that I was able to do this because it also allowed me to <laughs> do a little I'm bit glad of that you were able to do this. <laughs> it allowed me to just listen, you know. It is okay not to know everything and just know right. somebody who exactly. does. So I appreciate you. Exactly. No <laughs> All right. So right. thanks. And then no I guess problem. we'll see everybody at our next uh our next uh, session. You've been listening to the URM Journey to Academic Medicine podcast brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most other podcast providers, as well as on our website at stfm.org slash urmjam. Follow us on Twitter at stfm underscore fm.